Romans chapter 9 and uh, Matthew 5. <laughs> I just was reminded of this. Because uh, some of you, if you're, if you're kind of new here, you might be like, oh man, that guy cries a lot. What's up with that? Lisa was saying last week, she's like, yeah, Jeremy, he got up there and cried just like you. <laughs> we have two crybabies in the church. <laughs> All right, Romans 9 to Matthew 5. Today we're going to be looking at two groups of people, the stumbled and the humbled. Here's where I get that. Look at Romans 9.33. Paul's writing and he's talking about Isaiah 8. He says, behold, God is speaking in Isaiah 8. He says, behold, I lay in Zion, that is Jerusalem, in in the, uh, the promised land. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense. And uh, literally the word is scandalon. It's where, where we get the word scandal. And whoever believes on him, this stumbling stone, will not be put to shame. So Paul is talking about, re- referring to uh, a stone that apparently is both a stumbling stone and a uh, saving stone. And he's talking about a stone that's a person. The Old Testament, Isaiah 8, Psalm 118, some other places, speak of this one stone that is both the chief cornerstone and yet a stumbling stone. Long story short, Matthew 21, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, the people who are in charge of Israel at the time, and he says, hello, that stumbling stone, that chief cornerstone, that's me. He says, I am the chief cornerstone, and yet you Jewish leaders will reject me. So to you, I'll be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. But to the Gentiles, to many folks that you wouldn't ever believe would end up in heaven, I will be a precious cornerstone, one that they build their whole lives around. Okay, so we have one rock. We have two classes of people, the stumbled and the humbled. Now, in Paul's context this morning, the stumbled he's talking about is the average religious Jew. Okay, but for we know from a couple thousand years of history that these words actually apply to any religious person who's religious without a relationship with Jesus. We know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a stumbling block for any man-made religion. Anyone who thinks that the way you get to heaven is by being good or by at least being better than the next guy. See, Paul will begin to talk about the stumbled in our text this morning. That is the religious person who pursues righteousness. They pursue it without attaining it, we're going to see. They, uh, they have a zeal, but it's without knowledge. They have great effort that they put into their religion, but without success. So he's going to focus on the stumbled, but then toward the end, he's going to focus quite a bit on those like me, and I hope you humbled, those who are humbled that God would ever choose them for eternal life. Okay, so we're, we, uh, we're in Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Let me also say, in, uh, in these chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is addressing this basic question. What about Israel? What about the Jews? He's, he spent Romans chapters 1 through 8 talking about the gospel, the, the plan of salvation. And it's kind of like somebody stood up right at the end of chapter 8 and went, Hey, but... What about the Jews? I mean, weren't they God's chosen people? And if they were chosen, but 
Not many of them are coming in. Are they like God's failed experiment? Is God up in heaven going, Oy vey, what was I thinking? Are the angels kind of, you know, let's not talk about the whole Israel thing. No? We've seen as we've gone through chapter 9, God has always kept all of His promises to everybody, including Israel. He's blessed them, He continues to bless them, and He will bless them in the future. But here's the deal that we've seen. When it comes to salvation, God always calls individuals, not big groups of people. No one slips into heaven as part of a herd, as part of a crowd. You will not meet anyone in heaven who says, yeah, I made it because I belong to this herd or that herd. You won't find anybody in heaven who says, I'm here because I'm an Israelite. You won't find anyone in heaven who says, I'm here because I'm American. Look, I'm Republican. You're going to let me in, right? Believe it or not, you won't even find anyone in heaven that can say to you, I'm here because I went to Calvary Chapel. I know it's hard to believe. You won't find anyone that says, look, I belong to this herd or this club. Everyone is called individually. Everyone you meet in heaven will only be saying this. I'm here because I belong to Jesus. That's it. And that was radical thinking. You have to remember the average Jew was taught from the, when they were knee high to a grasshopper. They were taught... Look, the Gentiles, you, you, you are God's chosen, right? You have Israel's uh, blood running through your veins. Uh, you're a lock for heaven. But the Gentile, he was kind of created to keep hell hot. Truly, that was, that was the thinking. So imagine how hard it would be then for the religious Jew to swallow these words in chapter 9, verse 30. Paul says, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, first, we probably should make sure everybody's on the same page when regarding this word righteousness. You guys say the word righteousness, because I think you'll see it's kind of important here. Verse 30, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, righteousness have attained to even the righteousness of faith, but Israel pursuing the law of has not attained to the law of. whole lot of righteousness there. The word righteousness, it means to be right, to be in a condition that is acceptable to God. It speaks of integrity, virtue, purity of life, rightness, correctness of thinking and feeling and acting. So not just acting, and not just feeling, but even thinking. That means to be perfect in every single instance and millisecond of your life. The way you think, what you do, what you say. Righteousness. No one gets into heaven without having purchase, perfect excuse me, righteousness. Verse 30, he says, What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, the word pursue, means to run swiftly in order to catch something. So he's saying, look, I know it's weird, but these Gentiles, they weren't even really looking for righteousness. 
What should we say then? That Gentiles, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to it. This is really important. That word, you'll see two words for attained. This first one means to hold, to grab hold of. Okay? Um, but then it says, has not attained to righteousness, even the, or excuse me, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. He's talking about one kind of righteousness, right? And then he says, but Israel pursuing, that means they're chasing after the law of righteousness. So it's a different kind of righteousness. The righteousness that you get by the law has not attained the law of righteousness. Here's why I mentioned the word attain. For the Gentiles, the word attained means to grab hold of. For the Jews, the word attain, it's a different word, and it means to cross the finish line. It means to achieve it somehow. Very interesting. So, understand this picture. What Paul is painting is the picture of the good Jew, right? And again, uh, globally, this means they're a good religious person of any kind, right? The person who's a, a really good, devout Catholic, a person who's really good and following all of the rules in their particular religion, okay? But here, for Paul's purposes, he says, picture this, the good Jew. He is chasing after righteousness. He is working hard. He's going for it. He is trying to please God just by keeping the rules, by, by keeping the laws. He's just trying to be a good person. He's working really hard, but no matter how hard he tries, he cannot attain this righteousness through the law. And along comes the Gentile, this heathen dog, this sinner, idolater. This Sabbath breaker, he's not even pursuing righteousness. And he's like, hey, look what I found. The righteousness of God. And the Jew's like, what is up with that? I mean, that is what I've been looking for all of my life. A right standing with God. The Gentile owns it, and the Gentile, not all, not, excuse me, and the Jews, not all Jews. Paul is the exception but the average religious Jew who doesn't believe in Jesus looks and goes, that's not fair. How did you do that? And why could he not find this righteousness, this right standing with God that he's looking for? Verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. He says, look, there's two kinds of righteousness. And the, the Gentile wasn't even looking for it, but he, he stumbled upon this and said, oh, look. Look, it's the righteousness of God just given to me. But the Jew says, I've been looking for that all of my life. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. That is the Jews. The Gentiles stumbled upon it. The Jews stumbled over it. Verse 33, as it is written, Isaiah, uh, verse 8 is where he's coming from. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Here's, here's the long and short of this particular passage. Belief in Jesus is both the stepping stone to heaven and the stumbling stone for the religious person. That is the person who's working really hard. They're pursuing righteousness on their own terms. And I can tell you, as far as the Jews, Paul found this to be true in every synagogue that he went to. You read the book of Acts and you'll see that his standard, uh, his SOP was that he would go into a town and he goes, hey, okay, where's the synagogue? And he would go and speak to the Jews first because they were fluent in the scriptures. And then everything would be going great and then he'd start talking about Jesus and everything would go crazy. They'd start throwing things at him and chasing him down and trying to kill him. 
The name Jesus, belief in Jesus, is a stumbling stone. I was talking with Walter and Adrian, who are uh, Jewish, who have been uh, given their lives to Jesus. And they told me that this is true. And I guess if you've been to Israel, you could probably back this up as well. How many folks have been to Israel? Okay, just only a few. There were more in the first service that made me covet. But I'm not bitter. But they, they said this is true, that... You can go over to Israel and you can have an awesome conversation with, with a rabbi about righteousness and, and moral things and political things. And I mean, we agree, the evangelical Christian and the Jew agree on so many things. But when you mention this name, Jesus, okay, the conversation is over. It's a scandal on. It's a, a um, stumbling stone. It's a stumbling stone not only, though, to the religious Jew, but to anyone who thinks, here's the point, that righteousness, the righteousness of God, comes about by behaving. He's a stumbling stone if you think that righteousness comes about by behaving. But he's your precious cornerstone if you get it that righteousness comes about by believing. Jesus is our chief cornerstone, the precious cornerstone. To the average Jew, the average religious person, he's a stumbling block. The gist of all of this comes down to that. Righteousness of God comes not by behaving, but by believing. Okay? It's not by how we behave, but how we believe. Now look at chapter 10. Paul now is going to share with us in a couple of verses his heart for his fellow Israelites. Uh, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Now, if that burden of Paul's sounds familiar, it's because we heard that also in chapter 9. Look at the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from, from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites. Paul says, please don't misunderstand me. Understand me. I am not saying I'm happy that my Jewish brothers are not going down the wrong road. No, I am hurting for them. They are on my heart all the time. They are my, my really constant prayer. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer, my ongoing prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Twice now, both, both chapters, beginning of both chapters, Paul reveals his burden for his fellow Jews that they might be saved. A lot of this this morning, and I appreciate you guys keeping your thinking caps on, a lot of this is... Um, Theological things you kind of have to work hard to understand. But there's a few things in here that are really uh, just jump out as really easy to understand applications. Here's one. Paul had a burden for the lost. Here are these people trying to kill him. And twice now he said, and I'm praying for these guys all the time. These guys are on my mind, on my heart all the time. I grieve because... I, I see that they're missing it. Paul has a, a heart for the lost. The application, the convicting question is, do we? To underline that, let me, let me suggest something for you. How true would it be if you wrote down uh, chapter 10, verse 1, you wrote down that verse, and instead of the word Israel, you put in the word my neighborhood or my friends my cousins, my family. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for my neighborhood is that they may be saved. How true would that be of your true heart's desire and your prayer? Interesting to me that the order of the words, it says first my heart's desire and then my prayer. You ever notice that you only tend to pray about that which you kind of care about? Right? A lot of times we pray about stuff that's really important to us. Right? Paul says, look, I I guess the uh, prescription is this. Rather than leave today and go, okay, I'm going to start praying for the lost more. How about this? I'm going to start praying that the Lord would give me his burden for the lost. And then we will naturally be praying for the lost. Lord, help me care about the lost that are all around me. Verse 2. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Another quick note here, application-wise. You notice here, verse 2, that Paul says something nice about his enemies. You've got to remember, these are the same Jews that would follow him around from town to town. Like, how can we kill this guy? How can we trip this guy up? You hear what Paul's saying in verse 2? Uh, yeah, they're trying to kill me, but they sure are committed. <laughs> he found something nice to say even about his enemies. Are you one? Am I one who can find something nice to say even about those who are being not so nice to us? Or are you one who can find something mean to say even to your friends. Paul says, look, I bear them witness that they, I can tell you this one good thing, they do have a zeal for God, but, and then there's the but, but not according to knowledge. The religious person can have zeal, but unless it's according to knowledge, that is, unless it's actually based on what's true, it's futile at best and dangerous at worst. Again, if you've been to Israel, maybe you saw the folks at the Wailing Wall just crying their hearts out, uh, running around trying to show God how much they care. Trying to show God, maybe if I just do this, if I do this. This, was the, these, this is the text. Remember, Romans is the text that Martin Luther went, what am I doing? Working so hard to, to make God like me. What Paul says is, look, they've got a zeal, but it's futile. They, they're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. Okay? Uh, zeal without knowledge is futile at best, but think about this. Zeal without knowledge is dangerous at worst. Doesn't verse 2 describe every religious terrorist on the planet? I got a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Matter of fact, wouldn't that describe Paul, the former religious terrorist? That's what he did, right? Okay, which town do I go to next to kill some of those Christians? <laughs> I sure love God. God, how can I show you how much I love you? I'm going to go kill some folks. They had a zeal for knowledge, but not, excuse me, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And here's the piece that they were missing. Here's the, the truth that they were lacking. Verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish, that is, to stand on their own righteousness. They have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Just popped in my head, um, maybe this is helpful to, to some. You know, you see these words ignorant and not according to knowledge. There's probably not a, a race of people in, in the world that 
you, that would less apply these words to than the Jews. In other words, you look through the Nobel Peace Prize and you see how smart and how gifted uh, this particular race of people is. And here he says, look, you can be really smart. You can have all of these things going for you and yet you can miss a really huge fact. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to, it says, establish. Literally, it means to stand on. So what he's painting the picture is, is a group of people. For him, it's the Jews. For us, it would be any religious uh, group of people who are seeking to stand on their own righteousness. Look, I'm going to go to God because I work really hard. And I defy God to tell me that I'm not working hard enough. Really? Um... Well, I'm going to go to God because I, I know at least I'm better than these guys. God does not grade on a curve. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, they seek to stand on their own righteousness, having not submitted to the righteousness of God. I mean, I did this last uh, service. How many of you, maybe fairly quickly, if I say, I'm t- we're talking about the religious person, but they, they don't know Jesus. The person who is working really hard. They're trying to be good, but they don't know Jesus. How many of you have somebody that comes to your mind? Okay? A few? Okay? This is a question you could ask him from this verse here. Hey, I got a question for you. When you get to heaven, you know, when, when it's time, whose, whose righteousness are you standing on? Whose righteousness are you depending upon? Is it your righteousness or God's righteousness? If it's your own righteousness, good luck with that because the Bible says that your own righteousness is like filthy rags before him. The, the Old Testament uses some pretty graphic terms that I won't even share with you this morning. But trust me, the religious person's best day, our best day before God, is like filthy rags before him. And the religious person is ignorant of this fact that only God's perfect righteousness can get you into heaven. The only kind of righteousness that can get you into heaven is perfection. God's righteousness is not a condition you can achieve. It's a commodity you must receive. Now, I I asked the folks at first service how many of them remembered it. They all looked at me like sheep. That's important. If If you haven't gotten that out of Romans yet, write that down real quick. God's righteousness is not a condition that you can achieve. That's what the Jews were trying to do. It's a commodity that the Jew goes, hey, look what I found. It's a commodity you must receive. It has to be given to you. You can't go and say, I'm going to work real hard. I'm going to accomplish this. It's not possible. See, the religious person, he's pursuing righteousness, but he cannot achieve it. He cannot attain it. Which makes the most important word in verse 3, look at it. See if you can find the most important word in verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish or stand on their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. most important word in that verse to me is the word submitted. Because what he's saying is, look, the religious person, that person that you were thinking of, right? They have never come to the spot where they have just submitted to God's assessment of the situation. God says, look, i got one plan of salvation. It's Jesus. You're not good enough. You won't get in without Him. The religious person goes, whatever, whatever. I'm going to be good enough. You'll see. They are not submitting to God's only plan of salvation. The only way that they could be righteous. And that is the free gift of Jesus. 
He says, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that could be confusing at first. Hopefully it will make a lot more sense when we're done here. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for, for righteousness to everyone who believes. What in the world does he mean? Does he mean that Christ dispenses with the law? No, Jesus told us just the opposite. Turn with me to Matthew 5. See, there's two ways you can understand this word, the end of the law. Either Jesus is dispensing with the law, which we know is not true, or Jesus is fulfilling the law for us. Look at Matthew 5, verse 17. Jesus speaking. He wants to make this very clear. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Let me stop there. The... This helped me a lot when I finally got it. If you think of this as, okay, I'm a Christian, so I don't have to obey the law, or the law is not important to me, what you're saying is that Jesus has just uh, dispensed with the law. Okay? But you need to understand, Jesus is saying, no, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Actually, to fill in full. Imagine this. Imagine that righteousness is a glass that needs to be completely full before you get to heaven. And it's 10 billion light years tall. And on your best day, the day you're most proud of, you put a little thimble of righteousness in there and go, aren't I awesome? That's that's the picture. Jesus says, look, I didn't come to destroy the glass. I didn't come to take away the glass. I came to fill the glass on your behalf. Make sense? Matthew 5.17, do, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill, fill to the, the brim. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But watch this, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness... Whose righteousness are you depending upon, yours or his? Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. I guarantee you, if you were sitting live hearing him speak those words and you knew the Pharisees and you had watched the Pharisees, you'd be like, all right, I'm done. I'm out. There's no way because I've watched these guys, these Pharisees, these scribes, all they do is keep the law. I don't know how they have time to sleep when they keep the law. These, these Pharisees, they're, they're the ones that they take uh, the spices and they, they, they divide them up so that they can tie it on these tiny little spices. They say, okay, one for, one for God, nine for me, one for God, nine for me. These Pharisees are crazy in their attempts to keep the law. Jesus, if you say my righteousness has to be more than that, I give up. Back to Romans chapter 10. Righteousness to get into heaven that is required is completely perfect. And Jesus fulfills that righteousness perfectly. So he is the end that is the fulfillment of that requirement. Verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Hopefully you're getting this. Um, What Paul is saying is, look, that my keeping of the laws, it used to be all I lived for. But now it's no longer the basis of my standing with God. It's no longer the thing that I stand on to know that I'm righteous with God. The thing that I stand on now is Jesus. 
and His perfect righteousness. Now, maybe for some this morning that's still theory. Let me put it this way. Maybe you are a Christian. I hope you are. And you came in today. And you didn't. You came in not expecting to be blessed. Because you know what you did last week. Or you know what you failed to do last week. And you came in thinking, I can't go into church. I mean, yeah, I can go, but I don't really expect to be blessed because I'm going to be among all those people who have it together. And God would never pick me out to, to bless me. Not today, not this week. Maybe uh, a week from now after he's kind of forgotten a little bit. Okay. Maybe that's your standing, whether you have thought of it that way or not. You think, okay, my standing with God depends upon how good I am. You understand that this is saying, no, your standing with God depends upon Jesus. And I'm telling you, you know, God seems to be just beating it into us, but... As long as, you start, as long as you think of, okay, my standing with God depends upon me, upon me, upon me, you'll get worse. But when you begin to understand my standing with God depends upon Him, you, you'll be grateful and you will serve out of gratefulness. And you'll find yourself actually getting better. So if you came in this morning thinking, I can't expect for Him to just forgive me and let, let me walk in fellowship with Him today, you, you need to hear this. The sin is already paid for. The glass is completely full. You can't, your little thimble isn't going to change anything as far as God's love for you. Okay? Whose righteousness are you standing on today? Yours or His? Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above? Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Okay, again, keep your thinking caps on here. Paul is continuing to compare righteousnesses. First he says, look, the Gentiles just ended up with it in their hands because they weren't even looking for it, but it was a commodity given to them, right, by faith. The, the Jews were missing it because they were trying to do it by the law. Then he says, okay, the righteousness of God, God's own righteousness, that is Jesus, right, versus man's righteousness. And here he comes back to the righteousness which is of the law versus the righteousness which is of faith. He's comparing these two things, right? Verse 5, the righteousness of the law. Verse 6 and beyond, the righteousness of faith. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. I think the key word there is does. Not thinks about. Not tries to do. Not does better than the next guy. But who actually does them. In other words, if the path you choose for righteousness with God, for a right standing with God is the law, guess what? You're going to be busy. Really busy. Did you know there were, just in, in the Old Testament, 613 laws that you needed to fulfill to have the glass filled. But the Jews, in their pursuit of righteousness, here's what they did with that. As if, you know, for me, 613 would be enough. 
But here, they, they, uh, the Torah was 350 pages. They added the Midrash, which is the expositions of the Torah. And then they added the Mishnah, which was the rabbinic commentary of the Torah. Then they added the Gemara, which was the exposition of the Mishnah. So that 613 commands, if that wasn't enough for you, became the Talmud. 523 books printed in 22 volumes. See, what Paul is saying is to that religious person, look, if you want to save yourself, you better get cracking. You've got a lot of work to do. Verse 6, but the righteousness of faith. He's just described the righteousness of the law. It's a lot of work that most of us would quickly agree is impossible. Verse 6, but the righteousness of faith, though, Speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Again, a little bit difficult to, to wrap your head around. I'll do my best. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And the long and short of what, what God is saying in Deuteronomy 30 to Israel is this. Look, I haven't made it too hard for you. It's, it's not rocket science. I've not made it too far. It's not too far away. It's not something that you have to strive really hard to get to. Deuteronomy 30. I'll read verse 11. You don't have to turn there, but just let me read this for you. Um, this is where, where Paul's referencing. God speaking to Israel. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. And to most of these folks beyond the sea was a place you never came back from. Verse 14. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. What's Paul's point? He's again comparing and contrasting religion with true Christianity. Religion says you've got to work harder. You've got to jump higher. You have to reach deeper. Religion says, look, this is really hard and only the strong will make it. Paul says, God told us just the opposite in Deuteronomy 30. It's not far away that we need to elect our best person to go after it and bring it to us. I said for service, you know, Philip's a pretty good guy, right? Praise really awesome, right? This is not like, we're like, oh man, okay, we've got to please God. Um, what's our best representative? Uh, let's ask Philip. He'll go, and he'll go to the farthest end of the earth, and he'll bring it back, and then, then we can really start working on it. It's like it's not far away. It's not far away that we need to elect our best person to go after it. It's not far away that we need to reach up to heaven after salvation. No, the, the exact opposite is the message of the gospel. Salvation came down to earth. His name is Jesus. Salvation is right nearby. That's the point. Verse 8, Romans chapter 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. He's saying the word of faith which we preach. What Paul is saying is salvation is right near you. It's the gospel that I've been sharing with you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. 
verse nine that if and this is you know these are these are crucial uh, verses of the gospel here that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation I. I got exhausted just getting to this point. Just talking about other people trying to please God. And do you see that when we come to these verses, Paul goes, it's simple. It's really simple. Simple salvation. No heroics. No somebody going out and reaching for the highest parts of heaven and and accomplishing some heroic deed. No heroics, only humility. There are only two parts of the body mentioned here. And they are not the biceps and the hamstrings. They are not the mind and the guts. Just have guts. Gut it out. No. Mouth and heart. Verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a promise. Notice in verse 10, the same idea is restated, but in in different order. It says first uh, in verse 9, it talks about the mouth and then the heart. In verse 10, it talks about the heart and then the mouth. I think, don't know for sure, but I think that might be because uh, the verses that he's referencing talked about the, the mouth first and then the heart. But I think in verse 10, he wants us to realize the order of things. When God comes into this room and he wants to save one of you and you are, you're listening... The way it happens is first in your heart. He says, look, it starts with belief in the heart. So let's look at verse 10. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And then with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. He says, look, it starts with belief in the heart. Believing what? Look at verse 9. Believe in your heart that God has raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. If... If I've exhausted you already, I'm going to ask the Lord to uh, give you more strength so you can really focus here. Because this is critical stuff. Okay? Notice it says, to be saved, you believe in your heart. It does not say to just believe in your mind. What Paul is pointing out here is intellectual agreement is not enough. Nobody today could say, hey... Yeah, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, Okay, now let me into heaven. It's not just, I believe it in my head. James says, look, even the demons believe and they tremble. So if you come to me and say, hey, I believe that stuff in my head, that Jesus uh, died and rose again, now let me into heaven. I'll say, hey, congratulations, you're on par with the demons. No, the word believe means to put your trust in. What Paul is describing here is when you, not just from your brain, but from your heart, you place all of your future in the hands of a man who was crucified and died for you, but he's living again. You you begin a relationship with one who has already been dead and rose again. You are entering into an ongoing forever relationship with one who paid the penalty for your sins so that you could be justified. Just as if I had never sinned. See, you will spend, if you're hearing me, and 
are willing to respond, you will spend the rest of your life getting to know Jesus. Think about this. He's already dead and risen again. This is not even just the rest of your life. This is the rest of your, this life and your eternal life. We'll be getting, we'll spend the rest of our lives getting to know Him. But faith is not just head knowledge. I was saying how, uh, those of you remember how we've been talking about the hand and uh, how Jeremy made fun of us last week? Not the word better. Talked about the hand, people. Um, this is why this is, this is actually really helpful. That last digit, your pinky, this is what, we, this is what we're learning uh, in the evangelism class. You're welcome to join us, not Tuesday, but a week from. That faith is not just head knowledge. It's not just temporary faith. But it's trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal salvation. It's not just saying, yeah, I believe that stuff, now let me in. And it's not saying, hey, temporarily, hey, I said a prayer um, on this particular Sunday, so I'm in, right? No, it's entering into an ongoing, forever relationship with Jesus. Okay? Um, Verse 10, he says, look, first you believe with your heart. But then you confess with your mouth. For, the, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Confession, it's a really important word you're going to need to know. Homo logeo, it means to say the same thing, to agree with, to concede, not to refuse, not to deny, to admit or declare oneself guilty of what one is accused. Y'all, here, here's the critical difference. We've been looking at two kinds of people, right? The stumbled and the humbled. The difference is no one gets into heaven without admitting that they need a Savior. To be saved, you must admit you are a sinner. You must agree with God that your righteousness is not enough to fill up the cup. You must say the same thing about you that he says about you, which is you're a sinner. That you need a Savior. And you must agree, confess, you must agree with God about Jesus' new role in your life. Look back at verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Lord, it means boss. It means decision maker. It means one who has complete rights over you. Y'all, this is where words like repentance and surrender come in. Repent means to turn and change direction. What, what Paul is talking about here, he says, look, it's not rocket science. What you're doing is you're, you're believing in your heart and then you're confessing, saying the same thing that God does. Yes, Lord, you're in charge of all things. I'm a sinner. Will you pay my account? I'm turning. I'm repenting. I'm turning from following me to following you. Lord, you're the boss. No longer me. I surrender. And isn't it interesting between the stumblers and the humbled Isn't it interesting that many people would rather try to work their way to heaven than admit they need a Savior and surrender their rights to self-determination to basically say, wait, I don't want somebody else making the rules for me. All I can tell you is he's made the rules for me for many, many years now and I haven't followed them as well as I should. But he's made the rules and I've, I've continually surrendering my will to him. And he's never led me a place that I wasn't glad I was there. Okay? Nobody gets into heaven by their own works. See, Paul's point here throughout the, these last few verses is, look, no one comes into heaven like a hero. Just Jesus. 
reminds me of a joke. You guys ready for a joke? Actually, this joke, all of these jokes, you know where Peter's at the gate, right? They're all like theologically wrong, right? Okay, so I'm going to tell you a theologically wrong joke. But I warned you first, so here it is. Peter's at the gate, and uh, this guy walks up and he says, Peter says, why, why should I let you into heaven? I mean, have you done anything particularly noteworthy, you know, that I could kind of put in a good word for you with God? Um, the guy says, well, I, I saw this biker gang taking an old lady's purse. So you know what I did? I went right over into the middle of them and I punched the biggest guy right in the mouth. Peter's like, that's pretty impressive. When that happened? About five minutes ago. <laughs> Nobody comes into heaven as a hero. There's only one hero in heaven. Jesus. But think about this. This is what the great news for sinners like you and me. Because the the title I put over verses 11, 12, and 13 is this question, who can be saved? And the answer is whoever. Matter of fact, you guys read that. Verse 11, uh, for the scripture says whoever. Let's try again. I'm sorry, you say whoever. For the scripture says... Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who come upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Notice it says whoever. You realize what that means? This is, this is the whole thing that, that kind of freaked out the Pharisees. They're like, well, wait a second, why is he hanging out with the prostitutes and, and the, the drunkards? Well, because whoever can be saved. Whoever, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. This is the whole point that he is in 9, 10, 11. He's like, I know you thought that the Jews had a lock and that they didn't have to uh, come to Jesus. But yes, they do. But it's available to anyone, the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich. I love that word. It's plutos. It means unbelievably wealthy and generous. God is generous with his grace, with his goodness is rich to all who, does it say, work real hard, keep the rules? No, who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's do something as we're getting ready to close here. I want to show you again that it's not about behaving, but about believing. Look at chapter 9, verse 33. I want you guys to read, whenever I stop, I want you guys to kind of read the next word or two. Verse 33, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame, will not be turned away. Now look at verse 4 of chapter 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, um, good or bad, uh, particularly great person compared to me or someone who is, I would think, is much worth it, worse than me. There's no distinction between these folks for the same Lord over all is rich to all who what? Call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, over this whole exhausting text for me and maybe for you, never once does it say, blessed are those who work hard. 
that God will show His mercy to those who are worthy. No, it says whoever believes or whoever cries out will be saved. Let me close with this question. After this message, which are you? The stumbled or the humbled?